Hi, I'm Juliette Marquis, and this is Let's Unpack It. On April 21st, Estonia and Latvia became one of the first countries in the EU to officially label Russia's actions in Ukraine as genocide. Yuri Ratas, president of Estonia's parliament, said that systemic and massive war crimes have been committed against the people of Ukraine by the armed forces of the Russian Federation, which have consisted of murder, enforced disappearances, kidnapping of children, deportation, imprisonment, torture, rape, and desecration of corpses. These war crimes are acts of genocide, he concluded. Latvia echoed Estonia's declaration the following afternoon, likewise naming Russia's actions in Ukraine as genocide. A few weeks prior, President Biden called these actions by a similar name, but had to stop short of declaring them the official position of the United States. What was this word, and what was behind it? I sat down with someone who would know exactly the answer to this question. Genocide is a very specific term in international law. It refers to certain acts, certainly killing, but also in various circumstances, acts like deportations and rape and serious injury when those are inflicted for the purpose of destroying a particular group as such. And the type of group needs to be an ethnic, racial, or religious, or national group. Shimen Keitner. I'm a professor of international law at UC Hastings Law School in San Francisco, and I also worked for some time as counselor on international law in the Department of State. The term genocide in popular discourse, I think, is often just used to mean mass killing. And we certainly, unfortunately, have seen mass killing in Ukraine. And it, there's no hierarchy of crimes, but what the term genocide really gets to is this specific intent to destroy a group. And certainly, I think the reason that President Biden felt comfortable using that term, whereas previously he had used the term war crimes, is uh, there's more and more rhetoric coming from Putin and coming out of Russia about the Ukrainian people's lack of a right to exist as a people, the lack of a right of Ukraine to exist as a country. And it's that type of rhetoric paired with the actions that we're seeing on the ground that would provide a basis for a legal characterization of genocide. And so is there then a necessary reaction then that that characterization brings with it? Unfortunately not. I think the official characterization of the Rohingya mass slaughter and deportation in Myanmar that came out of the State Department just a few weeks ago, that official characterization of genocide, I think there was an expectation among some members of that community that that would mean certain international action would follow immediately as a consequence. And in an ideal world, perhaps it would. But that legal characterization does mean that when Putin and others who are accused of committing or ordering genocide are tried before for a court of law, that can be one of the criminal charges brought. It certainly is a rallying point for the international community, which is already condemning Putin's war of aggression. 
but there's no automatic trigger or consequences or authorization for international action that follows from that legal characterization in and of itself. I asked Shimon about what happened after the Holocaust that brought about the term genocide, and what was the intention of giving a name to a crime of that magnitude? A man by the name of Raphael Lemkin actually first introduced the term precisely, I think, to capture this idea that there is something qualitatively different about atrocity crimes committed for the purpose of eliminating a group as such, that there's something about this wonderful world that we live in that is composed of different groups of people with different collective identities that acts, again, that are criminal on their face already, these acts of violence, also merit this additional characterization as genocide when they have the purpose of eliminating some part of that diverse collection of groups that we have on Earth. Interestingly, the judgment at Nuremberg, so of course the Nuremberg trials are foremost in many of our minds, the post-World War II criminal accounting of the individual responsibility of German officials who had both planned and executed Germany's war of aggression. The crimes for which these individuals were ultimately convicted did not include an official crime of genocide. So the idea had been introduced at that point, but what that term, where it really became embedded, I think, in our collective consciousness was through a multilateral treaty that was negotiated, drafted, and ratified not too long after World War II, which is the Convention Against Genocide. And that treaty really defines the elements of the crime of genocide and all states that are party to that treaty, which includes both Ukraine and Russia, commit, of course, not to commit genocide, but also to prevent it and and engage in other activities to really make sure that genocide does not happen. Unfortunately, as we can see, that treaty commitment has not been observed. Moreover, as international lawyers, we talk about something called customary international law, which is sort of unwritten international law that is still binding. And not only is the prohibition on genocide firmly established in that unwritten body of, of international law, It's also what we call a a use Kogan's norm, a peremptory norm. In other words, something that there's no justification for it, no other uh, rule that could somehow take precedence over the prohibition on genocide. So it really is very firmly established in international law. Most countries in the world, including Russia, have signed onto this treaty. So I asked Shemen, when countries pledge to take steps in preventing genocide, how is that defined? What steps concretely are authorized to be taken? One commitment is certainly to prosecute individuals on their territory who have committed genocide or are alleged to have committed genocide. So the United States, for example, has what's referred to as the Genocide Accountability Act. So we actually have a statute in the United States that allows the Department of Justice to bring charges of genocide against individuals who are found in or brought to the United States, even if that genocide took place somewhere else in the world. So we do have a a basis. We have not used that statute before, but it's on the books. We have a similar statute for the crime of torture, uh, and we also have a statute for war crimes, although there's a gap in the war crime statute at the moment in which it would not reach crimes in Ukraine committed by Russians. And actually, there's some legislative proposals on the table that would fill that gap. So one thing is to 
to punish. And although that doesn't sound like preventing, the idea is by having those statutes on the books, you would hopefully deter individuals from committing genocide for the very same reasons that we have a lot of criminal laws that are intended to deter people from doing all sorts of other violent and destructive things. We also have, of course, the United Nations, which was born out of World War II, composed of both the General Assembly, in which all 193 countries in the world have a vote, and then the UN Security Council. And I'm sure you and all of your listeners have been hearing a lot about the UN Security Council these days. It's a 15-member body uh, that has 10 rotating members and five permanent members. And of course, Russia, being one of those permanent members, has a veto. Uh, Now, there's been some interesting talk about whether Russia really should occupy that seat, because of course, the seat belonged to the USSR, which no longer exists. But as long as Russia is occupying that seat, it has a veto. And so one of the things that could happen is the Security Council, for example, could authorize the use of force to try to restore international peace and security if that's threatened by a genocide. But of course, with Russia holding a veto and with China also not supporting overtly Russia's actions, but definitely having taken the position in the past that that other countries really shouldn't meddle in the internal affairs of certainly another Security Council member. I'm not sure how much support we would get uh, in in sort of the current political circumstances for some sort of Security Council authorized action. The other thing we've got uh, internationally at the moment is an international criminal court. Very much takes its inspiration from Nuremberg, but Unlike Nuremberg, which was uh, essentially a tribunal set up by the victorious powers in the war, the ICC is a, a permanent tribunal created by a treaty, and the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over crimes committed in Ukraine, including the crime of genocide. So there are penalties that can be imposed on individuals for committing genocide and war crimes, crimes against humanity, not just genocide. But that does feel like the focus on accountability obviously doesn't get us what we want right now, which is to stop the killing. And the the only two options that countries basically have are the ones that they're taking, you know, number one, to impose sanctions. And then the only other thing that can be done is to use military force. And although it would not be lawful to use military force to stop a genocide absent a Security Council authorization, it is absolutely lawful to use military force in defense of Ukraine when Ukraine has asked for international assistance, which it has. If we thought that the killing would be stopped by some sort of military intervention, we could be seeing that. We're obviously not, and and I think the the main reason for that is because we're not only dealing with a veto-wielding member of the Security Council, we're dealing with a nuclear power. What happened with NATO and the former Yugoslavia? They also held a vote. Also, Russia said don't take military action, but NATO did. And Putin will cite that as an example of why NATO is dangerous. So is that the reason why now they're trying to course correct? Because they learned some lessons Yeah. Now, I don't think it's course correction in the sense that when war broke out in the former Yugoslavia, which ultimately ended up in the creation of a number of new states in the place of, of what had been this sort of multi-ethnic federation ruled by a 
autocrat. One of the many things that happened, ethnic Serbs started committing atrocity crimes against ethnic Albanians, particularly in the Kosovo region. And so as this slaughter was taking place, other countries, and particularly European countries who happened to make up a good number of the members of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, said, can we really be bystanders here when this is taking place? The fact that Slobodan Milosevic and others were committing these crimes in violation of international law didn't stop them from having committed them. And and a parenthesis here is that Milosevic ended up dying in jail as he was being tried for some of these international crimes. Again, the, the sort of moral imperative to act meant that even though because of Russia's veto, and likely China's as well at that point, the United Nations Security Council did not authorize the use of force to defend Kosovar Albanians, NATO decided to do it anyway. And they at the time said, or at least maybe it's more what they didn't say, there, there was not a legal justification offered for that intervention in hindsight, there were some United Nations resolutions accepting and even going so far as to say that it was probably a legitimate intervention, even if it wasn't a lawful intervention. And that is certainly, as you said, a precedent that Putin has cited also, you know, on the grounds that, well, if Ukraine is committing a genocide, this gives me Russia the right to go in to prevent this genocide. And so it's it's a very difficult situation where it's hard for me to believe that if NATO hadn't gone to war in the former Yugoslavia, somehow Putin wouldn't have invaded Ukraine, right? So I I don't think that this opened the floodgates in the sense that if he was going to invade Ukraine, he was going to do it regardless of what happened in Kosovo. But it does give him an additional rhetorical weapon to wield. And so I think it does make the accusation of double standards, even though, again, I think it's it's very clearly a, a bad faith excuse and not one in whose absence he would have somehow acted differently. But then on the flip side, on the UN side and NATO side, you know, right now we're saying that we don't want to take military action because we haven't voted to do so. And if we did vote, Russia and China would likely veto it, much like in that situation. But yet in that situation, they made an exception. Why are they using the same reasoning? I don't quite see it as the same reasoning, because I don't think the reason that we're not taking military action directly, although, of course, we and other Western countries are supplying military assistance and so forth, it's not because we don't have Security Council authorization, right? Because unlike the former Yugoslavia, unlike Syria, for example, where there was not the leader of a country that had been invaded asking other countries to come to its defense, Here we have Zelensky clearly asking for that. And so although one way to use force lawfully is for the Security Council to authorize it, the other accepted legal basis to use force is in self-defense, including in what we call collective self-defense of a country that has asked. There is not a legal barrier to intervening. So the Kosovo precedent, and again, at the time, NATO said, don't take this as a precedent. But of course, what, what else is everyone going to do, right? There would absolutely be no legal barrier to, to NATO voluntarily acting in collective self-defense in support of Ukraine. The reason that it doesn't have to is because precisely Ukraine is not a NATO member, right? So Article 5 of that North Atlantic Treaty says, you know, an attack on one will be treated as an attack on all. And so this is also why we've seen that Putin has been very careful so far anyway to avoid attacking NATO 
territory because then that would be the trigger for a response. But while Putin's activities are limited to non-NATO territory, there is absolutely the legal basis to act, but not a legal requirement to act. I think that the bigger constraint at this point is the feeling that if the U.S. or NATO forces directly engaged Russian troops, that Putin would feel literally outgunned and would be even more tempted to resort to using some of these both tactical and other nuclear weapons in his arsenal. So really, it boils down to the fact that for the first time in history, we have a nuclear power who's wielding that threat in order to conquer new land as opposed to in self-defense. Wow. You know, I hadn't even thought of it in such stark terms. I think that's probably an accurate characterization. It certainly is unprecedented. Yeah. Because therein lies the thing of it is that there is really no legal barrier. It seems like we have all the pieces. It's the fact that he's saying, if you intervene, I will use my nuclear weapons. You better just let me do as I want. And hence the argument about why would he stop there? Because the threat will just continue. He can take whatever he wants. So then the fact of Poland being inside NATO or the Baltic being inside NATO, which are equally strategically valuable to Putin as far as the land that he would want. And so therefore they feel exposed. It's basically they have won in the game of musical chairs. They happen to be seated and Ukraine happens to be standing. (laughs) But really it's crossing one foot behind the barrier. It would then say, okay, then, then NATO has to go in. But now... What if we don't? What if Putin bombs the channel through which these weapons are being funneled through, but it's on the Polish side, but it's a military base? So NATO says, okay, well, it's a military base right on the border. And what does it mean? We have a legal then obligation to act. So can that be broken for the same reasoning of we don't want to start World War Three? You know, if there were an inadvertent spillover or attack on NATO territory. I think that you're absolutely right. There would be a lot of very frantic shuttle diplomacy trying to figure out what to make of it. I do think that if there were a deliberate attack on NATO territory, and I I take your point that it feels, it must feel, especially to Ukrainians, right, very morally arbitrary that, as you say, you know, you happen to be standing and other countries were seated. And this comes back to the war crimes and genocide. This is not being conducted as a military campaign with military objectives, right? Even if it were, it would still be an unlawful war of aggression, but it's not. And so that is, I think, what is just so devastating about it is the fact that it's being waged, but also the way in which it's being waged. But to your point, I don't think that having nuclear weapons does mean that Putin will be able to do whatever he wants because NATO countries have nuclear weapons too. I'm not in the situation room right now, so I can't tell you, obviously, none of us know exactly where the so-called red lines are, but I can guarantee that under this administration, which actually has a national security process in place and some very thoughtful people running through precisely the scenarios and hypotheticals that, that you've just put on the table and more, there is going to be a point at which a nuclear confrontation would result in a lot of devastation on both sides. But I don't think that the United States views our nuclear arsenal as something just nice on the shelf to admire. 
the world would be a safer place without nuclear weapons at all, but to the extent that we have them, they only work if they're a credible deterrent. And so if what I'm hearing from you is it doesn't feel from where we're sitting that it is a credible deterrent because the United States seems more so much more hesitant to even talk about using them than Putin does. Again, I think the reason we've heard the rhetoric that we have is precisely so that Putin in his little shell surrounded by people who are feeding him also, it sounds like, overly optimistic assessments of what's going on on the ground. We don't want him to get it in his head that he has to act preemptively. But I think there has got to be no doubt in his mind whatsoever that he too is walking a very fine line between staving off direct NATO involvement and triggering it. On April 25th, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has warned that the conflict in Ukraine risked escalating into a third world war and that NATO was, quote, in essence, engaged in a proxy war with Moscow by supplying Kiev with weapons. He added that the world should not underestimate the, quote, serious risk of a nuclear war over Ukraine. The following day, China, Russia's biggest ally, chimed in. Quote, no one wants to see the outbreak of a third world war, the Chinese foreign ministry said at a media briefing. Quote, we hope that relevant parties can keep cool heads and exercise restraint, prevent escalation of tension, realize peace as soon as possible, and avoid inflicting a heavier price on Europe and the world. I think the longstanding policy debate has been how much do you try to bring Russia into the fold, encourage it to be a responsible member of the international community and hope that by socializing Russia in these different institutions, it will behave as a responsible member of the international community. I think that's largely been the modus operandi in recent years. And yet now we're confronted with the question of, do we continue on that path? Or is there both a moral and policy case for just absolute rupture? And if so, what would the consequences of that look like? Yeah, really, that is the question is, are we at a point where there's no way back? So it is now a world divided. And then in which case, what does that mean? Indeed. And I I think the reason that Vladimir Putin has turned out to be such a dangerous leader, I think, is because at least some of his rhetoric seems to be embracing that, you know, embracing that division. Even the speech that he gave in which he was talking about Russians who may sympathize with the West and we should spit them out and these kinds of things, right? This is rhetoric that really suggests that he is embracing, at this point anyway, the rupture and seeking to purify his own country and double down on his hold on power domestically. And so this process as a method of enforcing international law. But that only works if you have a state that is sensitive to being an outcast rather than somehow taking pride in it. And, you know, as many have said, being an outcast or works if it's painful for the state. This is what remains to be seen. You know, will countries like China or India continue to you know make it less painful for Russia to be an outcast, or will it be sufficiently painful that either Putin will change his tune or those around him will decide that him being in power is not paying the dividends that that they had expected it to pay. One of the things that I think the sanctions were hoping is that the Russian citizens, the population would start to really put pressure 
the fact that they don't want to be party to this type of war that's, that they're not calling a war, but also that the sanctions are crippling their economy. And we found that that's not happening. The support is overwhelming. In Iraq, for example, sanctions largely made the population resent the West as opposed to want to depose their leader. I think in Iran, maybe we're seeing some of the same. In Sudan, there's an argument that pressure of sanctions over time in Sudan did help push the country towards political change. So it's definitely a mixed bag. The risk of backfiring in terms of the resentment caused by these shortages, not to mention the human suffering imposed by them, is something that is not straightforward. I have a hard time getting my head around broad brushstrokes characterizations of the Russian people and what they're really feeling. You know, we saw protests at the outset of this war where people, as you know, on penalty of having to spend the next 15 years of their lives in jail, were actively protesting the war. We see less of that now, likely because of the crackdown. We've seen stories of students ratting out their teachers for expressing any anti-war views. So it's certainly many opponents of Putin have left Russia, and we're seeing a real exodus from Russia. So I guess it stands to reason that those who are left either don't have the means to leave. And certainly there's much anecdotal evidence that a significant number of people do believe that what Putin is doing is liberating Ukraine. You know, there is a point at which, and we've seen this in the United States as well, when your information environment is closed off to other sources, when you hear a particular message day in and day out, it's human nature to come to believe it. And so I do think Russian propaganda is effective. I know that there's lots of efforts to try and get other channels of information into the country. That's an ongoing effort. I think there's been a lot of commentary on how Ukraine has been incredibly adept at mobilizing things like social media platforms to get information out to the public. And uh, this is certainly in addition to a ground war, a, an information war as well. Why is Russian propaganda so effective? Is there some kind of a unique way that they go about it that makes it just so sticky? I mean, I think public opinion polling generally shows that people tend to rally around the leader in times of war, right? And fearing for their security if they speak up or say otherwise. But it does seem like there are also a significant number of, of what we might call true believers, including people who have family members in Ukraine, right? So we've heard about these phone conversations of bombs are raining down, you know, as we speak, and, and the person on the end of the phone in Russia is not believing this. The other thing I will say, just to circle back to our conversation about genocide, is, you know, the irony is that Putin actually, in many speeches before the invasion, had been accusing Ukraine of committing genocide against Russians. And this was the specific term, right? It wasn't just atrocities generally. And something that people have noticed about Putin is that he tends to telegraph what he's doing or what he's planning to do by accusing someone else of that thing, right? This sort of gaslighting idea that is, has unfortunately become all too familiar. So I, I can only imagine being on the receiving end of that and, you know, human nature being what it is, maybe wanting to believe that your country is is fighting a noble fight. From a legal perspective, it's precisely that pretextual invocation of genocide as a reason for invading 
that has given another tribunal, the International Court of Justice, jurisdiction over at least some claims by Ukraine against Russia. It's quite limited. It goes back to that treaty I mentioned, the Genocide Convention, to which both of them are party. But there is a court order now, even though we couldn't get a Security Council resolution because of Russia's veto, there is an order by the International Court of Justice for Russia to cease its military activities. Of course, that order is being ignored. But from a, a legal perspective, you know, not only does international law not allow wars of aggression, not allow war crimes, genocide crimes against humanity, but this specific military activity is is going against the order of an international court. So what does all that mean? In the United States, the Supreme Court has a valuable say because we respect it. The rule of law in America stems from those decisions. So what good is it to pass judgments in an official capacity? And so, you know, yeah. Absolutely. No, and I, and this has been a longstanding source of skepticism of international law generally is the enforcement problem. I mean, I will just say We've been lucky in the United States so far that people do tend to take the Supreme Court's judgment as the final word. Uh, In the Bush v. Gore litigation, for example, over the election results, I think a lot of international observers were pleasantly surprised that Gore and others kind of accepted that judgment, even though they disagreed fundamentally with it, and that there wasn't a civil war, which is, you know, again, in many other countries, something like that would very much have led to civil war. We're not out of the weeds yet here, but that's another story. I think the International Court of Justice, like any international institution, relies on buy-in from states. So it does serve a sort of mobilizing purpose. And, And I should say, even though the Security Council has not been able to condemn Russia because of the Russian veto, the General Assembly voted overwhelmingly, 141 countries out of the 193 in the General Assembly voted to condemn Russia's acts of aggression. And so at some point, there are a variety of tribunals that could order Russia to pay reparations. Now, again, an order to pay reparations is different from compliance with an order to pay reparations, and and that will depend on what a future regime in Russia looks like. There's also, as I'm sure you know, a lot of thought going into whether oligarch assets can be seized for the purpose of providing some sort of eventual restitution. So the value of the international court's order saying stop the violence doesn't seem to be much if you look at it from the perspective of has the violence stopped? But if you look at it as reaffirming the prohibition on acts of aggression, and if you look at it as sort of a rallying point, a starting point also for future legal actions, showing that even though states are sovereign and there really isn't anything we can do about that, that's the way the international system is at the moment. There still are avenues to condemn countries for their unlawful behavior and to, again, rally support for efforts to stop them. The real tricky thing here is that concern about nuclear escalation is very much informing other countries' responses and and particularly their military responses. So the shape of this conflict is fundamentally affected by that. And every decision that's being made right now by policymakers, particularly in the United States, but in other countries as well, is in the shadow of that nuclear threat.
it almost feels like there is no off-ramp. There's only a one-way street once this war machine gets rolling. And so it becomes a game of chicken, of who gets to say to stop. Is there a point where diplomacy is just off the table? I think that what everyone other than perhaps Vladimir Putin wants to avoid is a conflict in which many, many more people die. There are two basic categories of tools. One are the sanctions tools, the economic tools, well, maybe three categories, right? One are the sanctions, the economic tools. Another are the prosecutorial tools. And again, many of those absolutely will be deployed and evidence is being gathered as we speak. There may be a new tribunal created specifically for the crime of aggression. The ICC has jurisdiction over all these other crimes, uh, but also prosecutorial in the sense of, you know, using domestic legal systems to do things like seize assets from those in Putin's inner circle. Although, of course, we are rule of law societies and we need a legal basis to do that. And so it's not just as straightforward as, you know, we see your yacht now we're taking it. So the sanctions bucket, I think, is the the one in which we've placed sort of most of our eggs, so to speak. But then the third is the military bucket. And it's not clear to me when and in what circumstances that might happen. But I absolutely hear you and agree with you that short of a definitive military defeat of Russia, which again, I think depending on what you read and who you ask, may or may not actually be achievable. And the fact that we're even sitting here saying it could be achievable is quite something, right? And, and looks very different than it did a month ago. Short of that, it really isn't clear what the off-ramp is. And, and what I hear you saying is even a military defeat wouldn't really be an off-ramp because Putin's never going to admit that he's been defeated. But the current situation isn't tenable either. I hear you. I agree with virtually everything you've said. And I think if there were clear off-ramps or a clear path to military victory that did not implicate the safety of you know millions of other people, even outside of Ukraine, not to mention the future of the planet, they would be easier questions to answer. Um, but they're not. They're really not. I had shared with Shemen that I was a former Ukrainian refugee immigrating to the U.S. from what was then the Soviet Union. Watching the destruction of the cities of my childhood has felt tremendously personal, which also brought with it a feeling of guilt about the selectiveness of my empathy. What about all the other conflict and violence across the world? In Yemen, in Myanmar, in Syria, in Afghanistan? How do we communicate properly that the focus on the Ukrainian genocide isn't because of some special status, but because the implications of these crimes are happening to all of us collectively? I think you're right. And I think it's very important to preface all of this with a, a recognition that the human suffering and even the scale of the human suffering, unfortunately, is not unique. But I've taken to quoting Alex Vindman's characterization of this as the largest country in the world invading the largest country in Europe. And so I think, you know, in that respect, it is again, not worse, not more deserving maybe of our attention, but something that we should all be paying attention to. And the argument, I think, is let's pay more attention to Gray and Afghanistan and Yemen, not less attention to Ukraine. Yeah. This is Let's Unpack It. I'm Juliet Marquis. Till next time. 